The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime. Hello, it's The Week in Art. I'm Ben Luke. This week, the recent opening of Edward Hopper's New York at the Whitney Museum has reignited a controversy over the provenance of some of his works. Plus, The Horror Show, A Twisted Tale of Modern Britain in London, and Hugo van der Goer's Death of the Virgin. I talked to the Hopper scholar Gail Levin about the story of a Baptist minister who befriended the Hopper family and eventually amassed a vast collection of memorabilia and art, some of which is in the Whitney Museum's latest show. In London, Ian Forsyth and Jane Pollard tell me about the horror show, their look at British culture over the last 50 years and how artists have used horror and fantasy as a means of exploring the political and social realities of the UK in that time. And this episode's work of the week is a newly restored Death of the Virgin by the Flemish primitive painter Hugo van der Hoes, which is at the heart of a new exhibition in Bruges. Before all that, you have just a few more days to take advantage of our student subscription offer. If you have a friend or family member who's studying art, art history or another subject this year, buy them a gift student subscription to the art newspaper from just £25 a year. Visit our website, click subscriptions and select student subscription. Do also subscribe to this podcast and our sister podcast, A Brush With, wherever you're listening. Now, the exhibition Edward Hopper's New York opened last week at the Whitney Museum of American Art. It's the natural home for a major show of the artist's work, since Hopper's wife, Josephine, known as Jo, left the Whitney all the art that she had, more than 3,000 paintings and drawings, when she died in 1968. Hopper had died the year before. But among the other objects in the show are examples from a more controversial collection. The more than 4,000 pieces of memorabilia and archival documents related to the Hoppers that have been largely unavailable to scholars for 50 years and were donated to the Whitney a few years ago by the family of Arthea R. Sanborn, a Baptist minister from Nyack, New York. Nyack was where Hopper grew up and where his sister Marion had lived in the family home until her death in 1965. Sanborn lived nearby and cared for Marion in her later years and then reportedly helped out Joe before she died. From the Hopper house in Nyack, Sanborn gained the archive materials that are now in the Whitney's collection, including photographs, letters and notebooks. But he also acquired hundreds of works by Hopper, including drawings, sketches and important paintings, including items that were in the Hopper's homes in Washington Square. New York and in Cape Cod, Massachusetts. The Whitney Show has prompted questions about how Sanborn came to have quite so many works and why they were not bequeathed to the museum, along with all the other artworks on Joe's death. The person who has most relentlessly attempted to find the answers to those questions, now over many decades, is Gail Levin, the leading Hopper scholar who was formerly a curator at the Whitney and organised its 1980 Hopper survey, for which the catalogue is still in print. She also put together the catalogue resume of the artist's work, published in 1995. She's now Distinguished Professor of Art History American Studies and Women's Studies at the City University of New York and I spoke to her about the story. Gail, you put together the catalogue resume many years ago of Hopper's work. Was the material that we're going to discuss now available to you as part of that process? If you mean the so-called Sanborn archives, no, I only got the tip of the iceberg. So I still haven't seen it, and I made a request to the director of the Whitney, Adam Weinberg, when the Whitney announced its receipt, that would be July 2017. I'm still waiting. I have an unanswered request in, it's only a day or so, requesting to spend three days going over all the archives, not naming this file and that file, because I don't know what's in them. But I already know that I made some mistakes in my catalog raisonne um, because I believed Arthur Sanborn, who had all these documents, which I didn't know he had. I knew he had some letters, for example. But I believed him because he said he was close to the Hoppers, which turns out to be just one of his many big lies. Okay, so let's go back a bit. So we know from that, what you say there, that Arthur Sanborn had a body of work by Hopper, that he owned a body of work well, by let's, Hopper. Well, let's be clear. Arthur Sanborn 
didn't just own what the Whitney is claiming now in their late catalog, soon to be published by Yale University Press, but the press has the uncorrected galleys, and I've read them. And frankly, it's shocking what he put in print. I was so shocked I couldn't speak for about two days. Namely, that they were negotiating with Sanborn and his heirs for more than two decades. But Arthur Sanborn, he was a minister. Yes, Baptist minister in Nyack at a church located just up the street from Hopper's boyhood home. Years earlier, before Sanborn was present, Hopper attended Sunday school at that little Baptist church, which his grandfather founded or helped to found. Hopper's only sibling, a spinster, and I don't mean to offend anyone using, but you get the picture, a year and a half older than Hopper, Marion, his only sibling, lived in that house, which I guess wasn't brought up to date, but she lived there. And um, the ladies of the church were looking in on her, and Sanborn got himself involved, knowing full well he was a New Englander, who Edward Hopper was, The sister, Marion, was proud of that. Edward didn't like his sister very much. He didn't like Nyack very much. And he didn't like religion very much. And he didn't like Sanborn very much. And I have proof of all those things. Well, that's interesting. So Sanborn befriended Marion and would drop in to visit her. And one of the contentions is that at that point, there was a body of work in the attic of the home, which he gained access to. Is that right? Yes, there's actually almost an hour with the introduction, public lecture posted on my website by Sanborn in the Rockland County Historical Society on July 22nd, 1982, for the 100th anniversary of Hopper's birth. And in it, Sanborn basically incriminates himself. He tells how he had the key to the house. He tells how he got Marion. Hopper's sister, her first television set, to, quote, sweeten her up. How nasty is that? And then he got her hooked on soap operas so she didn't want to be disturbed, so she gave him the key to the house. He tells how he kept the key after Marion died, after Edward died, after Joe died, and how he managed the empty house for the executors of the estate. This is extraordinary. And he tells how he went one day and went into that attic with his son. Uh, He claimed to have smelled a dead bird. And his comment was, and it was a treasure trove. And then he tells how he made his collection. And not only objects, but objects of art. And all objects of art, especially all objects of art by Edward Hopper, were left in Joe Hopper's will to the Whitney Museum. Joe Hopper is Edward Hopper's wife, who outlived him by a matter of 10 months or so. Is that right? That's correct. Joe Hopper was Edward Hopper's only wife, 43 years of marriage, and uh, also an artist, also bequeathed many of her works to the Whitney. But she, in her will, left the entire body of Edward Hopper's artworks to the Whitney. Everything by him that was an artwork should have gone to the Whitney. Is that right? By the way, Joe Hopper's will and Edward Hopper's will are both every page on my website, Gail Levin at CUNY Commons. If you Google that, you get my website. Joe Hopper actually left two of her paintings by her, one to a library on Cape Cod near their house, one to a friend in New York, one folk art painting she and Edward collected to the Metropolitan Museum, and all other works by anyone to the Whitney Museum. That means Edward's Aunt Tilly, if he had one, or but he did have ancestors that made works of art in the 19th century that were in that attic, all of which ended up in the possession of Arthur Sanborn, who was, by the way, named in the last few months of Joe's life as a recipient in the will. But he got no artworks, none. The only artworks went to the Whitney and Mary Schiffenhaus that, through the way the will was written, inherited the House on the Cape and its contents, which included original works of art. Right, so there was, as well as the New York home, 
there was a Cape Cod house and it was the Cape Cod house that had some works of art in it that was due to be inherited by the woman that you've just mentioned. Yes. So she and Sanborn, Arthur Sanborn, were two of six legatees at the end of the will when everybody gets what they're supposed to get and the funeral expenses are paid. If there's some change or, you know, money in the bank left over, it's divided between those six people. Right. And in terms of the kinds of works that were in the Cape Cod house, is it juvenilia? Is it, is it? No juvenilia anywhere but in the Nyack house. All juvenilia had to come out of the Nyack house. But that's another important point here. Adam Weinberg, in his catalog essay, uh, Yale University Press book, claims that Sanborn had only juvenilia and memorabilia and archival material. Look at the Yale University Art Gallery website and you'll see 17 drawings for sunlight in a cafeteria from 1958, all with a Sanborn provenance. Some of them gifts to Yale by Sanborn, who had no connection to Yale, but that's not juvenilia. 1958, he operadized in 1967. So by anybody's account, that's not juvenilia. And there are hundreds like that. I'm just pointing out some everybody can check out for themselves. That's right. The New York Times puts the number of works that Sanborn on. This is works, not uh, memorabilia or anything like that. Works, 300. Is that right? Well, that's right that that's what they said. The New York Times article was very careful They do not accept my word alone on anything. They're very careful journalists. So when they say it's more than 300, that's more than 300 they could find other confirmation for. I have hundreds and hundreds, maybe a thousand photographs, and they're half-sized photographs that I had taken for the Whitney in Sanborn's home in Florida by a wedding photographer from Palm Beach. So I know that those all came out of Sanborn's house, and I haven't stopped to count them recently. But, I mean, there are many more than 300. That's all I can say. However, some of those are youthful works that you could call juvenilia. But the Whitney's, however many thousand they claim to own, includes those kind of youthful works too. And when they're at the Whitney, they're artworks. And when they're in Sanborn's collection, these are identical things. They're suddenly worthless juvenilia. I don't buy that. No, so that's an important thing to state, isn't it? That in the will or in any discussion of these works, there was no distinction made between early works or anything later in terms of the value to the Whitney, in terms of the acquisition by the Whitney. No distinction whatsoever was made in the will. It was all artworks, not artworks after Edward is 21. No. And not only that, one of Sanborn's artworks, which is in the present show, Edward Hopper's New York, south of Washington Square, your listeners can look at it online on the Christie's website, Christie's in New York. In 2015, it was sold for 439000 U.S. dollars. Now, that's not exactly juvenilia. And they've got it dated circa 1915. I actually think it's later. But Sanborn had many, many drawings that had to have come out of the Washington Square studio. And Mrs. Sanborn told me a different story. In Arthur, her husband's presence in their New Hampshire home, they had many homes. I visited them in at least two homes, New Hampshire and Florida. And I saw them at the Whitney many times. Their son has claimed I never met them. Well, I published on Twitter a postcard that they sent me after the visit to Florida, sharing with me a little tidbit. They knew I was researching Joe Hopper, and they were kind enough to tell me that she was born March 18th, 1883 in New York City. That's the kind of crumb they would send one would share with me. I think that's pathetic. While he's coming to me as a, quote, collector with hundreds of Hopper artworks that he wants me to authenticate by putting them in the catalog raisonne. He couldn't have it both ways. What kind of human being would hide 5,000 
papers, the entire papers of a famous artist for 50 years. Suppose if somebody did that to Picasso. And remember, Sam Warnham was in no way related to Joe Hopper or Edward Hopper. In terms of the works, there is, of course, an, also a painting, City Ruse, which was in Sanborn's collection. He claims to have been given it by Joe. Is that right? Uh, yes, he claimed that. It's totally not believable because she wrote very carefully in the meticulous record books she and Edward kept of Edward's work. She kept them sometimes without his drawings, record drawings, and there's a, there is a record drawing tipped in for city roofs. And in her handwriting, it clearly says, here in studio. That would mean the Washington Square studio. But I was going to tell you what Mrs. Sanborn told me, how they got so many hundreds of mature works, not juvenilia, drawings. These are, I'm talking about drawings that are studies mainly studies for Hopper's mature paintings, had nothing to do with the Nyack attic. So in New Hampshire, Mrs. Sanborn, I asked her, how did you come by these later works? She said, well, the executor valued the entire contents of the Hopper's New York studio at less than $100. And as a residual legatee, that is one of the six getting the crumbs, Art Thayer was allowed to go in and buy anything he wanted for under $100. So he bought a high boy and a low boy. Those are Dutch antiques chest of drawers. When we got them home, underneath the dresser drawer linings were stacks of Hopper's drawings. Now, I don't know if she made that up. He heard her tell me. He didn't object to it. It could have been a planned excuse, a pretext, or it could be true. I have no idea. But whatever... Sanborn knew, because he was named in the will, that he got no art and that all those hundreds of drawings belonged to the Whitney. Instead, they've enriched him and his family quite a lot. If you think one sold five years ago for $439,000. Is part of the problem that the cataloguing of the works when Joe died was not done by a curator at the Whitney, say, or an authority in terms of art. It was done by a bank, is that right? That's right. No one from the Whitney seems to have checked at all. It's uh, shocking. And the Bank of New York was the executor, and I think they turned it over to the local lawyer who turned it over to the man with the key to the house, Sanborn. And I haven't told you how I first met him. He called me up at the Whitney right after my job was described in the New York Times by Hilton Kramer, the art critic. And he made an appointment to come meet with me and talk about his Hopper collection. He arrived with a giant suitcase filled with Edward Hopper's youthful works. I don't recall if there were any later works in that first visit. But um, he also had some letters that Hopper wrote home from Paris to his family. So I realized that this was the real thing. Tell me, what does the Whitney say about your claims? Because it's a major public museum. That obviously, they, in statements, are saying that they don't see anything wrong with the material. Well, they, I don't even like to refer to me by name, but of course, they call me a formidable Edward Hopper scholar in this same Yale University Press book that I've been talking about. So they don't attack my scholarship that I did for them, and they're still selling my books, and I don't earn a penny. That's not my issue. I let this whole thing die. It was on the back burner until 2012 when the Edward Hopper House in Nyack named a room for Sanborn. And then I still let it lie dormant until 2017 when I went into shock hearing that there were 5,000 documents from Hopper's heretofore lost papers and that Sanborn had owned them his heirs on them, and had concealed them from me and most other scholars for 50 years. It's outrageous. And that's when I started contacting press. I will say, I think the art newspaper was one of the few that mentioned my questioning how Sanborn got art in papers. Most just regurgitated the Whitney's press release. It made me sick, literally. 
obviously we should say, you know, the Sambo family deny all these accusations, of course. But do you have any hope that it will evolve? If the Whitney are saying, well, we've looked at the material again and we don't see any anomalies, we don't see anything wrong with it. Do you feel that there's any satisfactory outcome for you from this? I certainly feel that there's a better outcome than we're at now. The New York Times article and their brilliant investigative journalism helped to raise the issue. And I think if I can keep the issue alive, and I intend to as long as I'm alive, I really intend to make this an ongoing campaign till the public forces the Whitney to tell the truth. I'll be giving a a virtual lecture on a panel at the College Art Association on museums and plunder. That's the loose subject matter. I'll be doing a scholarly review of the exhibition catalog that I've been discussing and the exhibition. And by the way, I encourage people to see the exhibition. I don't want the Whitney to be heard. I don't want Edward Hopper to be heard. I want the truth on the historical record. That is my goal. Well, Gail, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you for your interest. I appreciate it. The Whitney Museum of American Art has issued this statement. The Whitney Museum is honoured to be the home of Edward Hopper's artwork as the artist intended. The Whitney received nearly 3,000 pieces as a bequest from the Hopper estate through its executor, the Bank of New York. The Whitney is confident that Hopper's wishes were respected and met. The museum is aware of claims made by a former curator. Those claims were considered when first made and were again researched more recently. The museum has found no basis to pursue the matter and is satisfied with what it received. The Whitney's focus is on preserving the legacy and furthering the scholarship around the life and work of Edward Hopper, as it has done for over a century. You can find some of the material that Gail referenced on her website. And Edward Hopper's New York is at the Whitney Museum of American Art until the 5th of March 2023. And the New York Times story that was referred to in the discussion is headlined, How Did a Minister Come to Own Hundreds of Edward Hoppers? And you can read more on this story in the November print edition of the Art Newspaper, which is out on the 1st of November, and online at theartnewspaper.com or on our app for Android and iOS, which you can download from Google Play or the App Store. Coming up, a horror show in British politics and culture and Hugo van der Hoers in Brussels. Before all that, here's this week's news bulletin. An American oil heiress founded the group that funded the recent series of climate emergency demonstrations across the UK. The details emerged after a protest discussed on the last episode of The Week in Art, in which two activists from the Just Stop Oil campaign threw tomato soup on Vincent van Gogh's sunflowers at the National Gallery in London. Eileen Getty, the granddaughter of J. Paul Getty, the oil tycoon and founder of the Getty Museum in Los Angeles, co-founded the non-profit Climate Emergency Fund in 2019 and has reportedly donated $1 million of her personal wealth to be used to support environmental activist groups, including Just Stop Oil and Extinction Rebellion. Several major figures in the art world have died in recent days. The New Yorker's art critic Peter Sheldahl, whose distinct poetic voice has been a reliable guiding light in the New York art world for decades, died on the 21st of October. He was 80 and had written poignantly about his prognosis. The Canadian artist Rodney Graham, a brilliant, funny and profound artist in multiple media, died on the 22nd of October. The renowned Palestinian artist Leila Shower, whose work reflected on the injustices experienced in her homeland, died on Monday at her home in London, aged 82, and Pierre Soulage, one of the most famous French artists of the post-war era, who for decades made abstract paintings using only the colour black, died on Tuesday at the age of 102. And finally, a painting rescued from the debris of a historic mansion, destroyed by the double explosion in the port of Beirut on the 4th of August 2020, has been identified as a long-lost painting by the 17th century Baroque artist Artemisia Gentileschi. It's being restored at the J. Paul Getty Museum in Los Angeles before returning to its former residence, the Sursuk Palace, the Getty announced this week. The work depicts the figures of Hercules and Omphale and had previously been attributed to an anonymous artist. Images of the work show rips throughout the canvas, from the catastrophic blasts which caused more than 200 deaths. You can read more on all these stories on the website or the app. We'll be back after this. 
The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Explore 500 years of art history. Visionary, the Paul G. Allen collection, comprises two auctions featuring masterworks from the major figures in the vanguard of art to the boundary-pushing artists of the present day. Thoughtfully curated by the co-founder of Microsoft over his lifetime, the unprecedented collection, valued in excess of $1 billion, charts the trajectory of art through the ages, with Botticelli, Cezanne, Gauguin and Hockney among its many highlights. Pursuant to the dedicated philanthropist's wishes, all the estate's proceeds will go to charity. Preview the works at the Rockefeller Centre Galleries from the 29th of October through to the 8th of November. And in the meantime, browse the sales online at christies.com. Welcome back. The British artist duo Ian Forsyth and Jane Pollard have joked that they would like to thank the British government for providing them with a perfect chaotic and dystopian context for the exhibition they've just organised at Somerset House in London, The Horror Show, A Twisted Tale of Modern Britain. Co-curated with Claire Catterall from Somerset House, it explores how ideas rooted in the horror genre have informed half a century of what they call creative rebellion in the UK. So, the story of the last five decades of modern British history from 1970s civil strife and punk through the Thatcherism and Neuromanticism of the 1980s, the invention of the internet and the young British artists in the 1990s, to the post-economic crash world of the past decade, is told through the eyes and the vivid imaginations of some of the most irreverent, politically engaged and experimental artists and cultural figures of the period. It includes nods to pop cultural pioneers, including David Bowie and punk icons like polystyrene, and of course work by artists across generations, from Helen Chadwick to Lee Bauer to Chyla Berman and to younger figures like the sound artist Gazelle Twin and recent Turner Prize winner Ty Sharney. Featuring over 200 pieces, from installations to memorabilia, the show is organised in three sections or acts named after classic horror archetypes, Monster, Ghost and Witch. I went to Somerset House to talk to Ian and Jane. Ian, I'll begin with you. It's called The Horror Show. Why did you want to call it The Horror Show? It was originally going to be called The Horror. That was the original plan. And there was a sort of skeleton plan for the show when we were first approached by Kerry Hand, who was the director of programmes here at Somerset House at the time. And the senior curator here, Claire Catterall, had been developing an idea for a show that looked at horror and art in some way and had the sort of sketch of an idea. And Kerry had said, you've got to go and talk to Ian and Jane they'll be able to help you with this. Is that because you were sort of enthusiasts of horror, effectively? I think Kerry just knew that we would understand the sort of sensibility of... I think to do a show like this, it needs to have a sort of amount of theatricality to it. It needs an amount of playfulness, perhaps. And it needs to not take itself too seriously. And I think all of that is quite present in our work and in our approach to work. And I think Kerry just understood that and knew that we would, would have something to contribute. Jane, can you tell me about how you arrived at the kind of time period that you're focused on? Because I guess, you know, when you think about the glory days of British horror, there are distinctive pockets of, of cultural output that could fit that. But why this time period that you focused on? I don't remember the last time I saw a really good kind of survey of the last sort of 50 years. Often you get it of the 70s and 80s, maybe even sometimes into the 90s, but nothing that looks at now back 50 years, like a a half century. And so when Claire brought the idea, this was one of the kind of possibilities of it, that monster feels to somehow embody something of the 70s and 80s. Ghost speaks to something in the 90s. So we started to then look at it. Well, for Ian and I, we were looking at it almost like a film, a three-act film, and looking at ways of having kind of callbacks and sort of pacing and rhythm and, and dynamism that kind of works through it. Right, absolutely. And it feels like that. But one of the interesting things I think about the whole notion of time in this show is that there are reflections and resonances. It seems to me that it's been really important, Ian, that you've kept contemporary and older works in a kind of dialogue right the way through the show. So time is a bit elastic, actually. It is. And I think that's really important that you can see. I mean, you could almost draw a sort of spider web across the entire show And in some strange way, almost everything kind of connects to everything else in some sort of 
greater or lesser degree. I think what was important to us was that these sections had a very distinct identity and that that identity said something about the period that we were reflecting on. But I think to do that, you need to look at contemporaneous works and what was happening and what was being said at the time. But I think you also need to understand how we're seeing it now. I think history needs to be seen you know, from the kind of spirit of the times, but you also need to be able to re-evaluate it, re-understand it, reprocess that information. But in doing that, Jane, it seems to me that you've avoided a trap for this kind of show, which is it doesn't feel nostalgic. It couldn't be nostalgic. It absolutely couldn't be nostalgic. We knew that. Often the work that we make is in and of itself the best articulation of the ideas that we had at the time and that we can find it quite difficult to put into words the ideas that I think are more succinctly experienced in the kind of corridors of the exhibition. So whilst we're looking contextually at the periods of time, we're also trying to kind of embody their spirit. So in Monster, for example, kind of that real focus on the clubs of the 80s, the music of the 80s, the monstering of self. You know, we want you to kind of feel immersed in that, to feel swept up by it, at the same time that you're able to kind of look back and see sort of momentary kind of pangs of nostalgia, the spitting image thatcher puppet for example that there are things that kind of speak to the you know the the young self that you know the one those who remember but it's that thing of being both about and of an idea that duality that's really important in our work and it's very important in this exhibition that it both speaks of something but it also kind of inherently is it as well would you say, Ian, that it's about looking at countercultures plurally, if you like? What I'm conscious of is that, you know, there are certain sort of established narratives, even now it's relatively recent past, but still about the 80s, for instance. But it seems to me that you're doing counter-counterculturalism, if you like. I think what we were trying to do was to provide as many dots as possible for viewers to join in a way that they find makes sense to them. And I guess what I mean by that is, you know, nostalgia kind of depends on where you're looking from. Something that's nostalgic to me would be ancient history to a 20-year-old. So we went into the show very aware that audiences are approaching it with a lot of cultural information already kind of embedded into themselves. And because the show kind of speaks across generations and across different types of counterculture and different sort of youth movements like punk and new romantics and all of those kinds of, you know, things, I think what we wanted to make sure was that there was space for people to find both the things that they were familiar with, but to also understand how those resonate around things that perhaps they're not familiar with. So you can come into the show excited about you know whatever the blitz kids and the lee bowery and be very excited by that but at the same time just across from there there's perhaps something by gareth Pugh that might be completely unfamiliar to you and i think that's what we really hoped that the show would do because i think it also it reminds us of the way that we first began to enjoy and explore culture you know when you're perhaps a teenager and you're starting to become aware of the things that sort of matter to you and move you you're no longer sort of a product of your parents record collections and bookshelves and all the rest of it and you start to absorb culture through other people you start to join those dots but you things are handed down to you people say oh if you like the Jesus and Mary chain you should listen to the Velvet Underground And before you know it, you're listening to a record that was made, you know, 50 years ago and you're understanding the connections and loving it just as much as the the stuff that's being made now. So I think that's the space that we were trying to explode with the exhibition. You know, very near the end of the show, you encounter Coyle, for example, who, you know, have been inactive for a number of years because uh, the founding members are now dead. But there's something about their work and their interests and the way that they operate around sort of esoteric ideas that is thoroughly contemporary and is thoroughly understandable to a very, very young generation that are finding out about those things for themselves. 
Jane, that one of the things that comes through to me from looking at the show is is about how successive generations of artists and cultural producers, if you want to call them that, have responded to extremely trying times with incredible vivid imagination and about the imaginative impulse as a kind of a form of protest if you like or a form of rebellion or a form of resistance was that a sort of stated intention at the outset or did that sort of emerge through the putting together the materials if you like I think we've always held the belief that the lifeblood, the vitality of art is its ability to challenge, to confront, to push for change. And that is very much at the heart of this exhibition. And I think horror has always been maybe a really useful language for those um, othered or unequal to be able to kind of galvanise and use in some way to get a direct kind of shot to the arm, a, a, an impact. So yeah, I think that has been right. It, it, it was always there. That's always what Ian and I are looking for, art that makes you feel something before you, you kind of think about it. And of course, there's a lot of you know, when we think of horror, we think of predominantly film, I'm going to say. Maybe that's my, just my contention, Ian. But one of the interesting things about it is that you see all sorts of art forms in a kind of dialogue. And you don't have a dominant form. It seems to me that there's an incredible plurality about the whole show, both in terms of the kind of makers and the medium. So there's a kind of sense in which there's an openness that emerges through this plurality. Absolutely. And I think for us that's very much just a sort of natural impulse that comes from our own practice really I mean as artists we've worked across many mediums and more recently we've been sort of engaged more and more in making feature-length films so in a way there's never really felt to us like there's a sort of hierarchy you know whether you're a painter a poet a you know whatever it's Engaging in a creative act is an impulse that I think is important and what that translates into, whether that's writing a song or writing a book or making a movie, is kind of up to you. And I think all of these things can sit very, very comfortably together. They very rarely do, and I wish they did more. But I think, yeah, for us, that was why it was important. And also the influence of horror touches on individual practices across all sorts of disciplines so you know people are taking things from the wicker man and you know being inspired to do something you know make some pottery or whatever it's not such a a clear-cut thing the way in which you've conceptualized it you obviously have to take political and cultural sort of landmarks as it were was there a lot of toing and froing about what those might be because of course you can conceptualize different eras using different sort of frameworks so Jane did you sort of have to sort of toy with different ideas before you coalesced around this kind of three-part um, structure yeah we did I mean the three parts were always mapped out but which elements which landmarks if you like time landmarks to to kind of focus on we did talk a lot about that and particularly in which actually you know which was probably the most difficult of the three sections one because we're living it still and two because we've become more global so it's far harder to kind of define a Britishness a British experience than it is in the other two so I think that there is a kind of language and a, there's a theory around which and around it also being weaponized by figures like Donald Trump, witch hunts, turning these phrases around. But we just couldn't get into that because it doesn't fit with modern Britain, even though all, you know, contemporary Britons will be very aware of it. So, yeah, there were certain things that we could and couldn't put in there. It's just struck me, Ian, that right at the middle of the show, timeline-wise, is the kind of mid-90s, isn't it? Is it? Early 90s? Sort of sits there right in the kind of centre, and there's a cabinet at the near the end of Ghost called Cultural Anxiety. That cabinet and the stuff within it is really kind of charting our most transformative period. So the point at which we're coming from out of London, Newcastle, Manchester, down to London, and we're finding the things that are going to change our life. So there was a Gavin Turk, he's, his work is just there, the Denmark Street Show, 
absolutely opened our eyes to what art could be and how it could talk to the past and the present at the same time. Joshua Comston became a real sort of mentor of ours. For a while, we became sort of unpaid archivists for him. We used to record conversations with him on Saturday morning in the cafe, in the Greasy Spoon Cafe. We have all these tapes of his, but his ideas were incendiary and mad and ambitious and incredible. And these were the people, Jeremy Miller's show at the ICA, the Institute of Cultural Anxiety. I mean, what a show. And it completely changed us. You know, Ian and I both turned 50 whilst this show is on, but there it is right in the middle of it. It's that point in time where we found our voice as creators. And that period was so kind of catalytic in a way. Yeah. It's really interesting that because one of the things about British culture generally, and particularly, in, you know, this is an art podcast, we're talking about an art show effectively is that if you like that period the 1990s in Britain has become internationally famous and particularly internationally famous for what is now a very narrow cultural kind of example and so the YBAs as it's called have become incredibly associated with money and with the kind of glamour of the art world but what's interesting is by including Joshua Constant who was this sort of incredible impresario figure but also including the kind of network of cultural forms around him you really show that actually that was an incredibly productive period for British art and in some ways the narrative around it has completely shifted by what's come afterwards so in a way is there also an element in which you can enact a kind of revisionism here and actually sort of re-establish some threads that maybe have been lost over time Ian? I think so, and I hope so. I mean, I think what Josh really understood was one of the things we were talking about earlier about sort of creating networks out of joining dots. And I think he had an incredible skill at being able to talk across all levels of kind of society or class or whatever you want to call it. And he could kind of galvanise people into a shared enthusiasm for the most ridiculous things. I mean, some of the projects he realised were preposterous and, you know, having sat and heard him talk about many of the projects that remained unrealised when he died, you know, they were even more preposterous. He died very young, we should say, and he died in 1996. How old was he? He was 26. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, I think for us personally, but also for culture more widely, it was a huge loss. He had an absolutely unique perspective on how art and society and people could coexist and kind of mutually benefit each other. And I think that got very, very lost in the kind of the mushroom cloud around the media presentation of the YBA generation. But there was some really interesting work being made, some really interesting artists coming out in that generation. And I think it's nice now to be able to look back and... I mean, for example, the the piece by Paul Finnegan, everybody who sees it just goes, oh, yeah, sensation. That was in sensation. And I've no idea if it's even been shown between sensation and now, but it's just become so intrinsically linked to that moment that it's kind of incredible that these things have that sort of, you know, almost that teleportation potential. You know, you see them and you're taken straight back to the mid-90s. I think it's something about the the way that the YBA's got kind of overshadowed in a way by the sort of Saatchi money bubble. But at the start of it was just this drive to circumnavigate what existed as the sort of conventions of contemporary art showing at the time. The art world didn't really have room for those artists to put on a show like that so they go and find somewhere to do it and that kind of desire to circumnavigate that Tracy and and Sarah's shop was the same thing it was a desire to somehow circumnavigate the means of art kind of production and distribution and yeah that made a big impact on us And, and I think that putting together a show like this you're really hoping that you're going to pull in young minds who might just take it as a kind of clarion call for, all right then, so what's my part? What do I do now? Which baton am I picking up and where am I going to take it? 
And also, I think it's good to reflect on the final section a bit and, and about what it says about this moment, because you're taking the sort of beginning of that section effectively is the crash of 2007 and the following years. In Britain, that was marked by a period we call austerity. Once really struck walking through those galleries, it's the least austere art you can possibly imagine in that space. And particularly, you think of Taishani's work in the final room which is this wonderfully kind of extravagant and haunting and strange it's called the neon hieroglyph again i'm talking about that sort of sense of resistance but it's a resistance through fantasy through literature through so much kind of cultural content do you want to say something about what you perceive as that in in that final section of the reason why are we seeing so much extravagance i mean i think it's important to recognize that quite a lot of that is also a sort of an extravagance of spirit but not necessarily an extravagance of wealth. Absolutely. You know, a lot of those artworks have been created in very hands-on ways, in very cost-effective, cheap even ways. Things are being hand-sewn, hand-stitched, hand-glazed. And, you know, the last decade or so has been a really hard time to be creative. And I think the last couple of years was really a nail in the coffin for so many people that work in a creative way that requires either collaboration where you need and want to spend time with people in a room experiencing something together and zoom's great it's really useful and there's times where it can save us flying around the planet unnecessarily and all of that but there is nothing like sitting in a room with someone that you're working with And just having a chat and kicking ideas around and something coming out of that connection. So that's all been lost for two years. Anybody with a practice that relies on an audience, theatre makers, musicians, performance artists, you know, have seen their work literally impossible at points during lockdowns, literally illegal. They've not been able to do what they do. So I think... What we have seen is people turn so much to things that they can control, you know, while the world is sort of taking so much control away from us, I think people have been finding materials that they can manipulate with their hands and things that they can, you know, do in small workshops. It's incredible that under, you know, the most trying of circumstances, people are still able to make work that has an extravagance to it. But I think, yeah, it's a different kind of extravagance to the, you know, 90s, to the burn-a-million-quid kind of extravagance. Jane, the burn-a-million-quid refers to the K Foundation, the KLF, which was so bound up also with the art world, with Rachel White-Reed winning the Turner Prize and the KLF awarding her the worst artist of the year and doubling the prize money for the Turner Prize, all that kind of stuff. But that's another story. But yeah, the kind of extravagance we're talking about is a kind of visual polarity of visual richness there's so much color in that final section but also this idea of which it strikes me is really crucial there's an occultish feel about it like a, a means of turning away from the present or reflecting on the present through symbols of the occult or kind of a language of occultism yeah when we start something we often think about what it is we want to leave you with at the end so the film we made, 20,000 Days on Earth, we had the last scene of that way before anything else. We thought it was to a different song, actually, the the song that you hear, the song that we end the film on, changed. The film kind of told us it needed to change. And with this exhibition, we had an idea of, even though the exhibition is so dense and rich and takes you on such a journey, the, the last thing that happens should be quite a singular, immersive experience scene scenario and so gazelle twin was the first kind of name that came to mind that we knew that she is so sharp she runs allegory and kind of political commentary in such parallel with such sort of black humor and a real sort of precision and sharpness of wit that we couldn't think of anybody better to finish the show on. And then it was just sheer luck. We started talking to Ty about what she had. And, and suddenly we landed on this piece that had only been shown for 11 days in Italy. And we were like, what? How? And between Ty and, and Elizabeth Gazelle Twin, we managed to kind of negotiate this, you know, uncollaboration 
The two works sit so well together, but they weren't made with knowledge of one another, but they were both so open to kind of how we arranged them and how they would interact. But yeah, it, it makes for one really incredible kind of last moment before we release you back into the world. <laughs> I mean, it, that's a really interesting point and a nice way to end in a way. I wondered if you can reflect upon what it makes you feel, because one of the things I was really conscious of when I was walking through the show was how it was pulling at all sorts of different strings, both emotionally, politically, in terms of my own cultural makeup, my kind of background, everything else. What are you hoping that people take from it, Ian? I hope that people leave with a sense of hope, actually. I think one of the great things that horror, and maybe particularly horror films, are generally, you know, the most disgusting kind of psychology terms, but... Horror in general, I think, you know, one of the key purposes it serves is it allows you to be frightened in a very controlled way. You know, you go in to watch Nightmare on Elm Street or whatever it might be, and you know you're coming out the other side and nobody died and everything's fine. And I think the intense focus that that moment or that series of moments in the case of a film give you kind of give you a moment to step away from the, you know, the real horrors, the horrors that are just outside the door, the horrors that are just across the bridge in Westminster, the horrors that day in, day out, people are being forced to confront in their everyday life. And I think horror actually gives you a respite from that. It gives you an opportunity to reflect in a different way. For me, it's inspiration I think I really would love it if people were able to see that across the exhibition is a kind of toolkit for how to make art that can bring about change how to make effective protest that's what I really hope that I hope that you know without kind of drawing anybody a diagram it's all in there you just have to look and you can see just how effective some voices, filmmakers, artists, musicians have been at kind of summing up the time that they live in but also pushing it forwards. Ian and Jane, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. The Horror Show, A Twisted Tale of Modern Britain, is at Somerset House in London until the 19th of February 2023. And finally, it's time for the work of the week. One of the leading Flemish primitive artists, Hugo van der Goers, is the subject of an exhibition organised by the Musea Brugge in the St Jans Hospital in Bruges called Face to Face with Death, Hugo van der Goers, Old Masters and New Interpretations. At the centre of the show is van der Goers' newly restored masterpiece, The Death of the Virgin. I spoke to the curator, Sibylla Hogeboer, about the painting. Sibylla... We're going to talk about Hugo van der Goes. Can you tell us a little bit about the artist before we talk about this amazing work? Hugo van der Goes was a Flemish artist living in the high Middle Ages in the region of Ghent, in the region of Flanders. He was very well known as an artist at that time. He was one of the Flemish primitives and he had a very high-rised elite clientele people who ordered works for him to do. So he was a very well-known artist at the time, yes. But suddenly he decided at the end of his life to vanish from the worldly platform. He went to the cloister in uh, the region of the Zonienwoud in Brussels, the Rode Kloster, and he became a, a friar, but he didn't do vows. He stayed in the cloister. He could do some things that other friars could not do. In the, in the cloister. So he could still make works of art, for example. And you think that he made his famous painting, The Death of Mary, at that time. So tell us then about Death of the Virgin. It's an extraordinary work, multi-figure composition. So tell us about it. Well, it's a very special composition because you see the death of the Virgin very centrally in the composition. It's a quite new composition uh, for that time. Other images of the death of the Virgin are very different. It's like the, the people who, who see the work of art can enter the space. So he tried to make a, a very new composition just to, to show that, that image. And the uh, apostles just around the Virgin, 
They are very connected to the Virgin too. They look at her, they look in the space around her. They are very connected to the theme of the death of the Virgin. And they are very individual types of people. They are not really crying. They are not really sad. It's like they see a new future for the Virgin. She is going to heaven and they know it. So even for the people who saw that work of art in that time, they understood what they were looking at. They knew that her life had a kind of happy end. She was going to heaven. And if they wanted to have a life like her, they had to do the same things as she did. And they tried to do that, otherwise they wouldn't get into heaven. So people were a little afraid or even a lot afraid about dying. Of course, at that time, it was very present in their everyday lives, That's wasn't it. they? So it, it would have meant a tremendous amount to see this. Yes, yes, it was a help. Indeed. Now, one of the most extraordinary features of the painting is the colour of yes. Mary's face. So yes. she, it's almost sculptural. She almost looks like stone, doesn't she? She does. It's a, a kind of white. It's very difficult to describe the colours of the painting because they are so special and unique. You cannot compare it to other works of the Flemish primitives. He has a way of painting with colour, and the colour makes the work alive. Yeah. He, he works with contrast, but not too much. He works with light, but not too much. So he very well knows what he's doing. He does this amazing thing, I think, in this painting, in the sense that, on the one hand, it's very still. It is. And very... Um, severe. Uh, pro- yeah, severe and mournful, indeed. Yes, yes. And yet there's a tremendous dynamism in those figures, isn't there? That's right, that's right. If you look at their heads, their eyes, their fingers... It's not only the colour that makes the composition, but it's also the the way they are moving and the way they are placed on the composition. It's very well studied. Now, above the bed, what we see is an image of heaven, but also a vision Mm -hmm. of Christ. It is. Tell us about that, because it's extraordinary, isn't it? Well, uh, the Legenda Aurea tells about the end of the life of Mary, the Virgin, and when she died, she fell asleep. It, it's not really dying that, she, that she's doing because, of course, she's going to heaven after her death. And already three days after her death, when she was buried, she went to heaven. So people knew the story. And when they saw Christ taking her soul into heaven, it was a kind of relief to them too. Because they knew that life after life really had, had a meaning. They would have an existence after their death. And you see that also on the on the painting. You do indeed. You see this extraordinary ethereal vision, isn't it? You see God, you see her son. Yes, yes. It's a vision, of course, of course. But because it's so close to the scene of the death of the Virgin, it's almost a real story you're seeing. It's like you are participating at the event. Now tell us, this painting has been restored recently, is that right? Tell us what, what you've done to it. Well, the restoration was a quite intensive job to do. It is done by um, Hirit Steyart, who uh, did it for almost five years. A lot of work had to be done. Holes had to be filled, colours had to be restored, the varnish had to be redone. So before she started to work, the restoration, a lot of study work has been done also on the the works of art by Hugo van der Roos. Uh, before, of course, because you cannot start a restoration just like that. You have to do some intensive research before you're doing. And of course, she had done the, the Lamhots in Ghent, so she has a lot of experience in restorating the, the Flemish primitives. So she really, really knew what she was doing, of, of course, course. Absolutely. And, and what's it revealed? What's the restoration revealed? First of all, the, the color palette. The colors are much more intense than we knew them before. That's why we also say oh, it's very well studied by Hugo van der Hoes himself. He knew what he was doing, why he was choosing this or that color for the painting. Um, what we also saw that was that the composition was a little different. We see curtains, parts of curtains on the panel, which means that maybe the interior of the deathbed room was with curtains before it like the painting with the Adoration of the Shepherds from Berlin, you see also curtains before the scene of the Adoration. So we think that maybe it was the same kind of composition as the German painting, 
but uh, we don't know really for sure how it looked like because we, we don't know how it was ordered, of course. And you've curated an exhibition around it which involves lots of contemporary mm-hmm. interpretations and so on. So you're bringing it into the 21st yes. century, aren't you? We do. Of course, it's still an exhibition of old art. We do have 70 objects of old art from different museums in Europe. But we also know that the meaning of the painting, the religious meaning of the painting, is not that well known anymore by uh, actual visitors. So we know that we have to do something to make it clear what the real meaning of the work still can be. Of course, it's a, it's a religious painting with religious motives, but we also know that the message that the painting is telling still can be understood today. And we try to explain what the painting still can mean for visitors today. So we invited also contemporary artists to tell their opinion about the death of the Virgin by Hugo van der Hoes. And artists from across different fields, yes. right? So you have Anne Therese de Kiersmaker, yes. the great choreographer, and right. Belinda de Brucera, the, the, the artist, for instance. Yes, and uh, Ivo van Hove, the director, yes, of course. And the book writer, Ilya Pfeiffer, also. Well, thank you so much for telling us about this extraordinary painting. Yes, you should come and visit it because it's really special. Face to Face with Death, Hugo van der Hoer's Old Masters and New Interpretations is at the St. Jans Hospital in Bruges, Belgium until the 5th of February next year. And that's it for this episode. We're on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. The Week in Art is produced by Amy Dawson, Henrietta Bentel and David Clack. And David also does the editing and sound design. Thanks also to Daniela Hathaway and to our guests, Gail, Ian and Jane and Sibylla. And thank you for listening. See you next week. Bye for now. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime.